Hey, everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. My name is Courtney. And I'm Patrick. Good to see everybody today, even though we can't see you. Can't see you, but we mentally can see you, so we, we love you. We see you in our minds. It's a little weird. <laughs> it's a little weird. Man, do we have an episode for you today? I have been ready for this one. I'm excited. I am absolutely <laughs> excited. This is one of the ones I know about because a little off of our normal topic, but it's one you had to, you couldn't even hold this one in. You were so oh excited my God, it. I'm so excited. But first, real quick, little business to get out of the way. Uh, we'd like to take the time to shout out an awesome podcast that we found. We like to share the love with you guys. Love. That's what's amazing about this podcast community is everyone's yes. so friendly and eager to share each other and help each other grow and just introduce other Heck people to yeah. podcasts. It's awesome. And we share the ones that we love. And uh, we found one we love called uh, True Nightmares Podcast. And it's hosted by husband and wife team Jennifer and Bronson. Like oh. us, husband and wife team. Yeah, I like their name. <laughs> I know, me too. And um, I'm loving them. They're husband and wife team just like us, and they're into true crime and spooky stuff just like us. But uh, here's their trailer, guys, so check them out. Hey, you nonconformist. Let's face it. You're listening to our promo right now, and you're wondering, who are we? I'm Bronson. And I'm Jennifer. And, and we are the hosts of True Nightmares Podcast. We cover everything from the gruesome ghostly and mysterious we put out new episodes every sunday at five o'clock and we're available anywhere you listen to podcasts if you're interested in true crime and the paranormal then come check us out we're on instagram at true nightmares podcast and we would love to have you a part of the family as, as always, always have, have a, a wonderful, wonderful day and, and stay, stay out, out of trouble. trouble yeah so definitely go check out true nightmares podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts and uh, subscribe to them on IG and tell them that Courtney and Pat sent you. Yeah, I know. I definitely am going to be checking them out <laughs> over the weekend, so. All right. Patrick? Yes? It's an excellent day for an exorcism. Gee, Courtney, why would you say that? This is a cup of my blood. No everlasting covenant, a mystery of faith. What an excellent day for an exorcism. You'd like that? Wouldn't that drive you out of Reagan? It would bring us together. You and Reagan. You and us. You know what that's from, Patrick? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I 100% absolutely do. And I think a good portion of our listeners probably have a good idea what that's from. <laughs> so in 1973, one of the most, if not the most profitable horror movies of all time was released a little movie called The Exorcist. <laughs> yeah, it was a game changer. A the, game the changer. The, the movie continues to terrify generations who watch it. In fact, I remember my first time watching it. And I was probably about twelve, and I didn't sleep for a week. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It was it was messed up, man. <laughs> it was it, messed up. It's crazy because you know it was a good movie because it, it spawned all those like spoof movies. Oh and yeah. All those, not and how false. many exorcists were there? There was like four or five, wasn't there? There was there was a couple. I can't remember. There was definitely a, they definitely did not hit the way the first one did. No, they didn't hit the way the first the one. Second, but the second and third one were they're all right, but they did not. The first one was. It was I don't think there any, been anything like that outside of Alfred Hitchcock before that. So if you're not really familiar with what we're talking about, uh, the movie The Exorcist follows the demonic possession of a young girl named Reagan. And her mother's attempt to rescue her through an exorcism conducted by two Catholic priests. 
But did you know that it's based on a true story, Patrick? I didn't for most of my life. And ironically, probably a few months back, mm-hmm. uh, I heard that it was actually based off of a true story. Yes. Um, slightly different. I'm sure you'll touch on that in yep. all the details. But yeah, it, I guess I know that you hit on everything else before I start going on to it. Yeah, you guys were in for a treat. Um I will venture to say that the true account, which we're going to get into today, is far more frightening than the movie itself. So until there's a reason you just heard of it not too long ago, Patrick, until 2020, the names of those involved have remained under lock and key to protect their privacy, of course. But unfortunately, in May of 2020, the last surviving person of those involved in this harrowing ordeal passed away. So today, guys, we are going to dive in headfirst and discuss the true terrifying story of the 1949 St. Louis exorcism, the inspiration behind the movie itself. Yeah, as I was say, like a bunch of people just started talking about it in the few past months, and so that's obviously yeah, that's why someone passed away. The last person passed away, so they can talk about it. I don't think anyone has actually covered. If they have, please correct us. But I, I don't think I don't think I've found. But it's pretty new. All the new info that that's we what have. I'm saying. All yeah. the info is new. I don't think anyone's covered the true story or the real. You know, there was basic. I've heard basic stories about it, but I don't think anyone's had like the real details of the. Yeah. This is what's up. So hopefully we're we're gonna we're not gonna have the time. I'm gonna keep you here for a while, but we're not gonna have the time to really dive in so in the in the um show notes we'll give you some reading material so you can get the full picture but i'm gonna give you i'm gonna give you a general rundown i'm gonna scare you as you always do as As i always always do. do quick side note guys um we will be using quite a few roman catholic references today uh i am not catholic but i'm going to do my best to be completely respectful so if i mispronounce something which i most likely will or get the name of a certain prayer or blessing wrong. Um, I promise it is not on purpose. I'm doing my very best. I'm also not trying to dive into religion or say that one religion is better than the other. I'm just merely relaying the facts of this fascinating account. (laughs) So grab your split pea soup and let's get into it. Oh, no, I get where you're going. You get it? I get it. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll try to... You know, I, I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, so I can... You can help me. Try to catch you where it is, but it's been a few years. Uh, but, you know, yeah. if you misspeak or say it incorrectly, I'll chime in like I always do. Yes, I always please do. do that, please so. correct me because I you know, really I have, do want to be respectful. You know I have no problem correcting you, so... Yes, please do. And y'all out there, too, if I say anything wrong about one of the rituals we talk about, please feel free to email us, evilpuddingpodcast at gmail.com or DM us and... Correct me. I'm all about it. So let's get into it. Ronald E. Hunkeller, we're going to call him Ronnie, was born June 1st, 1935 in St. Louis, Missouri, to parents Edwin and Odell Hunkeller. Edwin worked as a a machinist. Is it machinist? Is that how you say it? Yep, machinist. At Frank Adam Electric and Odell, uh, Ronnie's mom, was a homemaker who took care of her only child. In 1939, the Hunkellers moved to Maryland with Ronnie's maternal grandmother, Anna Coppage, a German immigrant who was a devout Lutheran, which is something she passed down to her daughter, Odell, who in turn shared her faith with her son. 
Ronnie, being an only child, was a bit lonely, but he had a favorite aunt, Matilda, also known as Tilly, which I think is the cutest name ever. Tilly, short for Matilda. It's definitely like an early 1900s. I love it. So that was his father's sister. So that was Ronnie's maternal aunt. Tilly and Ronnie were so close that it was extremely hard on Ronnie when his family moved away from her to Maryland for her for his dad's career. Now, it is thought that Ronnie's Aunt Tilly was somewhat of a spiritualist and she gifted Ronnie a Ouija board. But this oh, can't no. be confirmed or denied. In fact, it's it's most of the priests involved in this said that that's it's crap, but it was a it was a it was mentioned, so I'm just throwing it out there. Ronnie seemed to be settling in because they moved to Maryland. He even had some friends now, and he was entering into the seventh grade in 1947 at Bladensburg Junior High when he was 13 years old. But things went downhill seemingly soon after Aunt Tilly unfortunately passed away at just 53 years old. So that's when, when Aunt Tilly passed away, that's when Ronnie, 14 at the time, and the family experienced the first, quote, incident inside the walls of their home. There were intense scratching noises. It was thought that it was just mice or maybe rats. So the family did what any family would do. They called an exterminator, as we all would. But nothing was found. Okay, weird, but not alarming, right? Houses make noises. Yeah. Following the scratching sounds, plodding footsteps could be heard around the house when no one was walk was up and walking around. Remember, there's only three, four of them, so living in that house, so it's easy to keep track of everyone. Dishes also started to rattle violently in the cabinet, as though a Mack truck was passing by and shaking the foundation. Little alarming. Then it seemed as though Ronnie was being individually targeted. At nighttime, his bed began to shake violently. His covers would be ripped off. And when Ronnie tried to hold on to his covers, he was pulled out of bed with them as well, with a great force. Now Odell, Ronnie's mother, as well as his grandmother, wholeheartedly believed that this was late Aunt Tilly, and this was her doing it. It was her ghost. Basically, she was haunting her nephew, is what the mom and grandmother thought. Makes sense, because she was a spiritualist, did all the Ouija stuff, supposedly. So, I know what you're thinking. This family could be lying for attention, and maybe so, but I just urge you to listen to the, until the end and save your judgment. First, I would like to talk a little bit about where we're getting all of these accounts from the family. Okay. Because I want to cover everything. Yeah, I yeah. want you to leave here with a definite opinion, yay or nay. I don't want you to be like, eh, I don't know anymore. <laughs> so there is something in existence called the Exorcist Diary, which is the backbone of this story since the Catholic Church has never released any details. And if it was up to them, this diary would never have been released in the first place. Oh, yeah. They keep all that stuff under lock and key. Anything... You, know, you can't even do exorcisms without the sanction of the Catholic Church. No, you can't. It has can't. to be, you know, authorized by the Catholic Church. And, they and then all it's the secretive. And they yeah. seal them all. You know, the Vatican's probably got thousands of years of the darkest secrets oh, in the world. Oh, you know it. So the, this diary contains firsthand accounts from eyewitnesses, as well as 14 priests who were involved in the exorcism we will be speaking about today. 
The purpose of this diary, according to Father Raymond Bishop, was to hopefully be of use to anyone who finds themselves in a similar situation in the future. A how-to manual of sorts. Like, if it gets this messed up, man, use this book. Here's what you do. <laughs> when you need break glass, open book. <laughs> exactly. So the first entry of this diary is as follows. And this is a direct quote, which I will be doing a lot of in this episode. On January 15th, 1949, at the home of Ronald Hunkeller, a dripping noise was heard by Ronald and his grandmother in the grandmother's bedroom. This noise continued for a short time, and then the picture of Christ on the wall shook, as if the wall had been bumped. By the time the parents of R returned home, there was a definite scratching sound under the floorboards near the grandmother's bed. From this night on, scratching was heard every night about 7 o'clock, and would continue till midnight. The family thought that the scratching was caused by a rodent of some kind. An exterminator was called in who placed chemicals under the floorboard, but the scratching continued and became more distinct when people stomped the floor. Right, which, you know, I'm going to do a quick side note on this. I'm going to cover it later on, but, you know, it follows the very definite first stage of a, of a possession, right? Because yeah. you have infestation, mm-hmm. oppression, mm-hmm. obsession, mm-hmm. and then actual possession. Yeah. So like your infestation, your early stages, your typical haunted house, your noises, things falling off the wall, mm-hmm. scratching sounds. So that means obviously all the things that are going on right here are that, that first it lines stage. Up. It's all the stuff you see when you watch your ghost hunter TV shows or anybody out there watching, you know, ghost adventures. All paranormal. Paranormal activity shows, mm-hmm. all the scratches, you know, the disembodied voices, uh, the unexplained things you can't you can see. They feed off fear, so they create fear. Right, initially. they create it, mm-hmm. and as they feed off of it, it, it manifests into the Gross. next st- next stage, which would be uh, oppression and then obsession, and obviously full on outright possession. I like it. Things got pretty scary for Ronnie, as you can imagine, oh, no doubt. <laughs> who slept one night with his mother and grandmother. Odell went on t- to record in the diary later that. She confronted the ghost on this particular night. Remember, she thinks it's Aunt Tilly. Yeah. Odell would say to the spirit, is this you, Aunt Tilly? If you are Tilly, knock three times. After she said that, three distinct knocks were heard. Then Odell asked if it was Tilly to please knock four times. Four knocks were heard, followed by claws scratching on the mattress. Another night, Ronnie's mattress shook so hard that the mattress slid off the frame and fell onto the floor. The edges of the bed covers lifted straight up as if they had been stiffened by starch. When Odell reached out and touched the covers, it fell normally on the bed. Yep, Mm. you know, that's one thing that, you know, all these possessions and stuff like that is the demons mimic children or people. So if you think you're talking to like oh yeah they'll take on Millie or Tilly or whatever Tilly her name is Tilly. they're gonna act like you're talking to her because they want you to feel comfortable with her they want you to like well, what's interact the number with her. one rule never address it directly no don't talk don't even deal with it even in hauntings that aren't demonic or you know possessions even in hauntings you don't you're not supposed to address no, it you're, you're actually directly. inviting them yeah to you know interact with you and by inviting them you don't know you don't actually know what you're inviting it could be you something don't dark, it could be something demonic. And if you do that, you threaten, you, you risk the chance of, you know, bringing it home with you or having it attached to you. You've seen that. We've seen that on millions of you know, paranormal shows and all those kind of things. And they go ghost hunting and stuff and they invite these things. It always follows them. Mm-hmm. 
And at one one place they go, somebody ends up getting followed home. They start having crazy stuff happen at home. And it's all yeah. because they're inviting this interaction with yeah. this entity that you can't tell if it's don't talk to them. some innocent little <laughs> kid that died there 20 years ago. Or yeah, you don't know. Demon. You don't know. Because if you can talk to one of them, you can speak to all of them. Yeah, there's a doorway to that. Or if you believe in that stuff, there's a doorway or a portal to wherever they're from. So incidences were not isolated to the home, however. At school, before Ronnie was removed... Ronnie's desk began to shake violently in the middle of class. The teacher, thinking Ronnie was doing it on purpose, demanded him to stop. And Ronnie was like, I'm not doing anything. (laughs) It was that day that he was removed from class and he didn't return to school for the rest of the year. One weekend, relatives came to visit the Hunkeller house. Ronnie sat in an overstuffed chair that levitated before jolting forward, tossing Ronnie to the ground. The family was stunned, so they went to examine the chair, only to find that it just couldn't be explained. There was nothing wrong with the chair. Minutes later, a flower vase levitated as if being picked up by an unseen hand before shooting across the room and smashing to pieces against the wall. Later, Ronnie was tucked into bed in his room while the adults were downstairs when they heard him shout. Everyone came rushing in to see what was wrong. When they opened the door, just a little ways, a heavy chest of drawers came sliding across the room, slamming the door shut. Mm -hmm. After the family heaved their way in, the drawers to the dresser began to open and close seemingly on their own. Ronnie sat up in bed terrified and watching in terror. The family, desperate for help, contacted a local rabbi who reportedly came out to visit. This is crazy. (laughs) Ronnie inexplicably shouted at the rabbi in perfect Hebrew. It is said that before he left the home, the rabbi recommended that the Hunkellers contacted a priest. (laughs) Like, contact a priest. Don't call me again. Well, it's one of those things you see in all these kind (laughs) of movies and all all these shows is, you know, like, these people start speaking in languages that they have no reason to even know or even dead language. I mean, they'll, they'll speak same. Yeah, script. we'll see that several times here, and especially Latin. You see and, it all the cla- Latin's one of the mm-hmm. ones you see in all these classic stories of possession is these kids usually, because kids are the most susceptible, they're usually the ones that are getting the possessions and they, they start spouting out in like perfect Latin or perfect crazy. Hebrew and people are like, what the fuck do you know what? that shit, dude? So the family were not just quite ready just yet to turn to the Catholic church. They I'm, turned I'm sorry, to what? their, they turned to their, um, Lutheran church. Oh, okay. I thought you weren't ready to go to the church. I was going to be like, uh, dude, no. there's shit flying in my house. Doors are hitting They went me. to their pastor, but they saved him like for desperate measures because I'm sure they were kind of embarrassed. Well, you, there's you know? a personal connection there. Yeah. So you don't want to go in there and be like, we're crazy. Yeah. But you know, when vases and shit are flying around the house, you at least got a poltergeist. You got a poltergeist at least in the house. You know it's what I mean? time to not care about what people think. <laughs> yeah. And the kid is, the kid has got to be terrified, terrified and a mess at this point. So the family turned to their Lutheran church, and they probably saved this option for last to save themselves possible embarrassment. I don't know. That's me speculating, not that. I mean, it makes sense. That's what most people would do. Their reverend, Luther Schulz, by his own account, witnessed furniture moving on its own in the Hunkeller home, dishes flying, glasses breaking, and even Ronnie's bed vibrating and shaking. So the minister, this was the first time, other than the family, that... Uh, a man of God witnessed it and had it recorded in the diary, by the way. 
So the minister requested that Ronnie receive a psychiatric evaluation first, which that seems like a very logical next step to me, and I'm glad he did that. Ronnie was determined by several doctors to be a completely normal, bright, and well-behaved young man. After that, Reverend Schulz organized a prayer circle for Ronnie, and the family was given frequent Holy Communion. This seemed, though, to stir something up inside Ronnie. It was during this time that Ronnie began to show outward signs of depression. He wasn't his normal self by any means anymore. He had lost his appetite, and he wasn't speaking. He even started to curse in his sleep, which is something he just never did. Reverend Schulz just wholeheartedly rejected the idea of demonic possession. That was a very Catholic belief to him. Which is which is crazy because he's clearly, you know, look him up. He's he's in stage two. Yeah. In what is it? Oppression? No, upset. Oppression. He's in oppression, which affects you know sleep, financial relationship problems. But they didn't believe in that back then. Oh, I know. I'm just yeah. saying, like he's clearly in the second phase of whatever's going on here. Yeah. He's damn near halfway to full on possession. Um, Reverend Schulz did have an idea of what he thought was happening to the boy. He thought the events were just paranormal. So Schulz decided to see what would happen if Ronnie was taken out of his home environment. Maybe the events would stop. So he brought Ronnie to his own home that he shared with his wife. And it was here that Schulz slept in the guest bedroom alongside Ronnie in side-by-side twin beds. To evaluate them. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. There's a lot of stories of the hauntings and stuff. It's a lot of times it's the building, not the person or something like that. The goal of this experiment was to see if Ronnie's grandmother and mother were kind of the catalysts for the haunting. Yep. If the activity stopped when Ronnie was away from them, then he would know for sure. So the pair went to bed and about 10 minutes after laying there, Ronnie's bed began to shake. Then scratching sounds started coming from inside the walls. You didn't, Grandma. Reverend Schulz prayed fervently, but despite his efforts, the scratching and bed shaking just grew more violent. Ronnie laid there completely frozen in fear. The minister decided not to outwardly acknowledge the occurrence, so he got up, turned on the lights, and invited Ronnie to the kitchen for a cup of cocoa, which is smart. Yeah, he doesn't want to acknowledge the, the presence. He doesn't want to scare him either. Yeah. When they returned to the guest bedroom, Schulz asked Ronnie if he would maybe like to sleep in the armchair in the corner of the bedroom. And Ronnie was like, okay, let's try that. So as Ronnie settled in the chair with his blanket, the chair shot forward and back across the floor violently over and over. Reverend Schulz, remaining calm, probably dying on the inside though. Yeah. He, he was smart. He asked Ronnie, hey, please raise up your arms and legs just to make sure it wasn't him moving the chair. Indeed, it was not. The chair was being moved by some unseen force. Dude, how scary is that shit? Oh, You're 14 oh, years old and like you can't even sit in a chair and the chair moves around the room on its own. I know. Like not just moves, but I mean it's flying, flinging itself around the room. Terrifying. I would literally crap on myself. <laughs> I think Reverend Schulz probably did. <laughs> So, finally, the chair jolted forward, dumping Ronnie, now in a trance of sorts, onto the floor. Schulz was dumbfounded and unable to logically explain these occurrences. Calmly, Schulz made a pallet on the floor so Ronnie could try to sleep there. Around 3 a.m., 
Schultz woke up to Ronnie's pallet sliding across the floor. Dude. <laughs> like, he's smart. He's like, look, he shook the bed. Okay, move the chair. Dude, it certainly can't sleep the floor. I know. Like, the, you can't move the floor. Oh, it did. So the reverend got out of bed to stop the pallet from moving. Then, Ronnie, seemingly in a trance, slowly got up and started banging his head on the headboard over and over before finally being stopped by Schultz. So they had an eventful night, to say the least. Reverend Schultz still believed that something paranormal, not demonic, was to blame. He really thought it was a poltergeist. For whatever reason, well, I think we know the reason, this marked the end of Reverend Schultz's involvement in <laughs> Ronnie's case. Fucking deuced out of that. <laughs> like, he yeeted himself out of that situation. He is not mentioned again in witness testimony in the exorcist diary. And... That is probably because he was scared to death and yeah, didn't mean, want to be a part of this. He like, he's like, yep, yep, I'm going to rain calm. I, I witnessed that. You know, you probably do got some paranormal sh- stuff going on. I'm going to get the fuck out of this situation. <laughs> Y'all need to call somebody else. Lots of luck. We'll pray for you. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> so Ronnie would be a normal boy by day. Then by night, something else just seemed to have a very strong grip on him. Yeah, so now you're, you're entering the third phase. Now you're in obsession. So February 26th is the first day the diary mentions markings appearing on his body. The marks on Ronnie's arms, leg, and chest were shallow furrows, almost as if he had been scratched by a cat. It is important to note that the Hunkellers did not have a pet from what I can find. Sometimes the family would notice that the markings would be in the shape of a strange and unusual symbols, sometimes letters. The family tried um, one last thing. They admitted Ronnie into a hospital for another psychological evaluation. Ronnie was brought to Georgetown Hospital on February 28th, and doctors spent days examining Ronnie and found him, again, to be perfectly healthy, sane, and normal. So this marks the second psychological evaluation this boy has undergone, which is good because now we can rule that out. I mean, yeah, you didn't fuck up the first one. It wasn't something tainted yep. by the first one. I mean, it's been, you know, the more evaluations he gets, obviously, and he's cleared, it's like, okay, this is clearly not a mental health thing. This right. is some other shit going it, down with this kid. And it's also important to note that Odell, when it comes up, when the priests become involved, Odell, uh, Ronnie's mother, had no idea what a possession was. She had never heard of such a thing. Well, they didn't. I mean, this is the 1940s. This is not. Yeah. This is not modern day where we have demon movies every every time. Yeah. Wholesome family stuff. Probably the only people that talked about anything demonic was like the inner circles of the church. Right. Absolutely. Or occultists. So Odell, his mom, suggested that maybe it would do Ronnie some good for the family to return to St. Louis, where they were from, so he could be with family. It was then that the word Louis appeared scratched deeply onto Ronnie's ribcage while he was under hospital observation, no less, which tells me it could not have been him doing it. And it's also ironic that she's like, we're going to move to St. Louis, and, and the Lewis word Louis shows up him. on his body. A friend of, a, this is crazy, a friend of a Georgetown hospital resident recalls the following in the book, The Devil Came to St. Louis by Troy Taylor, which I will list in the show notes. This is a direct quote. Around 9 p.m., two doctors and a boy who looked about 13 walked into a room that he and a number of boys were housed in. Needless to say, my friend's father, as well as the other boys, knew nothing about this boy. 
My friend's father said that he looked directly at the boy. He said that the boy glared into his eyes. He said that the moment he was terrified and that some of the boys began saying aloud the Lord's Prayer and Hail Mary. So it's hard to say if that's true or not since it's a third-hand account, but it's worth mentioning. I mean, that's creepy as shit if it's true. Like, they see this kid walking in, and, like, his dad, who has no idea who he is, is struck with fear mm-hmm. and terrified, and everyone else is just starting to say, oh, I think, and that's or, also, like, that's the only third-hand account. The rest are going to be first-hand accounts. It's still terrifying. So it just adds to the... It's going to add to it, yeah. So, the Hunkellers arrived in St. Louis via train with plans to stay for a good long while in an effort to restore some peace in their family. Edwin, Ronnie's dad... Uh, would commute back and forth to Maryland for work. Now, this right here, mm -hmm. now this right here, speaking of, is one thing to consider if you are skeptic, if you are a skeptic. Why would Edwin agree to uproot his family and risk his employment if this was indeed a giant hoax? Think about that. No, 100%, 100%. So just keep that in mind. That's a freaking commute, dude. Anyways, the family settled in for the time being, at the home of Leonard Hunkeller, Edwin's brother. Leonard was married to Doris, a devoted Catholic woman, and together they had two children, Janice and Neil. Their home was located at 8435 Roanoke Drive in Bel Noor, outside of St. Louis in a suburb, and would be where Ronnie's future exorcism would begin. The That's legendary, the, the legendary exorcism house. That's the house. This is the house that inspired the movie. In fact, you can still go and see it today, by the way. I'll make sure to post a picture of it on our IG. Like the real house? Yeah. Oh, damn. It looks so creepy, but back then it was beautiful and very modern for the time, I would think. It's a big two-story red brick home. It's... It's really big, actually. Oh, it looks it from the pictures. It's crazy because like, all I can picture is the, the house in the movie. And for some reason, it reminds me of an eerily similar like visual of like the Black Monk house. Yeah, yeah, it does look like that, sort of. Yeah, that's what I'm... Because yeah. the other one looked like the Black Monk house in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, if y'all haven't... Side note, if y'all haven't heard about that, Google it. It will blow your mind. It's crazy. So this new living situation really worked out perfectly because Ronnie and his cousin Neil were the same age. So they were able to share a room upstairs. And oh, it hell was, no. And it, <laughs> Ronnie can have his own damn room if I'm Neil. <laughs> and it was nice to have someone to take Ronnie's mind off of things for a while. It's not going to last. <laughs> the first day that Ronnie and his family were there, it was uneventful, even fun. Neil came home from school and was excited to see his cousin Ronnie there. Ronnie seemed the happiest he had been in quite some time. In fact, that afternoon, Odell mentioned possibly enrolling Ronnie in Neil's junior high. Just as the words left her mouth, Ronnie screamed from the other room. Ronnie, with zero expression on his face, lifted his shirt. The words, no school, were scratched into his chest. And the word, no, was scratched multiple times into his arms and both wrists. That night, Neil and Ronnie said goodnight to everyone and went upstairs to bed in Neil's room. An hour passed by uneventfully when the adults downstairs heard Neil let out a loud yelp. All four adults went into the bedroom to find both boys sitting up in each of their beds, terrified and motionless. 
Each of their respective twin beds were moving back and forth and then violently smashing up and down as if on sliders, I'm imagining. And then, wow. Yeah, that's great. I could almost get the boys faking the back and forth. You can't fake up and down. You can't fake up and down. No, uh-uh. You I mean, I don't think you can. You can't can. sit on your bed and physically fake it bouncing up and down violently. So Ronnie's aunt and uncle... You can imagine they were horrified. They were probably thinking, what have we got ourselves yeah, like, into? What, the, what did you bring to our house, dude? <laughs> but remember I said Ronnie's aunt and uncle had other kids besides Neil? They have Janice, their daughter. Well, Janice was attending college in uh, St. Louis University. And her favorite professor there was Father Raymond Bishop. He was patient and attentive and had all the time in the world for each of his students. So Janice taking the initiative, thank God for Janus, met with Father Bishop the very next day and described to him in detail what her family was going through, especially Ronnie. Yeah. Father Bishop listened intently and made arrangements to go to the house to meet with the family ASAP. But he had a feeling that there was, in fact, something evil happening in that house. He just knew. I mean, you're talking about a kid who's having words carved into his body while he's just sitting there. Yeah, you're going to think something's going on. Before going, he took some precautions and consulted with Father Lawrence Kenny, another stand-up Jesuit priest in the ninety in, in his night I almost said in the nineties in his nineties and still going strong. He listened to Father Bishop's concerns about his upcoming meeting with the Hong Kellers. Father Kenny told Bishop um, to tread carefully and maybe meet with the president of the university before going. Just cover your bases, man. That's what he said. It was a Catholic university, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. This was such bad timing for publicity, though. In 1949, St. Louis University was in the limelight because they were taking a very controversial stance in support of the of black rights and desegregation. So having an ancient ritual like an exorcism leaked out to the general public would be detrimental to the reputation of the university. I, mean, I get that. You're already in controversy. You're already in the news and the headlines. You're like, oh, by the way, while they're doing that shit, they're doing exorcisms over here. Right. So, long story short, if there was going to be an exorcism, Father Bishop would have to apply for permission from the Archbishop himself, who was a man named Joseph Rudder, and not involve the university in any way, shape, or form. So, handle it yourself, bro. Yeah. Leave Take it outside of it. the university, yeah. which, you know, it makes sense. It makes sense. Take it straight to the, you know, the Which I get it. The, you know, to go to the Archbishop. If they got to escalate it higher than that, they could take it all the way to the Vatican. You know, you know how that works. I don't. I don't. I don't know how it works, but I do now after reading this. Yeah, no, I get you. <laughs> it's a hierarchy. It's a yeah. governmental. It's a government in and of itself almost. It really, it really, it's an, it's an entity, if not a business or a government or whatever you want to refer yeah. to it as. So on March 9th, Father Bishop met with the Hunkeller family for the very first time. First, he met with Edwin and Odell, who described their situation. Odell even mentioned, of course, her concerns that this was a haunting, and she felt that her husband's sister, Tilly, was responsible. She also made sure he was brought up to date with Ronnie's psychological evaluations, as well as the evaluation done by Reverend Schulz. Once Bishop felt that they had heard enough, he went to meet with Ronnie. Father Bishop found Ronnie to be, quote, the type of boy who would not make any trouble for his parents, which is a direct quote. So he's a good kid. He's a good kid. So definitely hard to believe because according to his parents, his nature had changed dramatically, which is one of the many symptoms of possession, of dramatic 
change in nature. Oh yeah, you obviously you're not, you're, you start you know you start wearing down all these things that are happening to him are wearing down his fight, so he's losing the ability to control what's going on, and the demon just gets stronger and stronger or whatever. The and he gets weaker and weaker. Yeah, he, as he gets weaker, it gets stronger, and he's losing control over everything of from his emotions to his actions to his body, and the demon's just taking more and more. So Father Bishop walked around and blessed each room of the house, praying in Latin, sprinkling holy water. He spent extra time in Ronnie's room that he shared with poor Neil. <laughs> poor freaking Neil, dude. <laughs> Father Bishop prayed a special blessing over Ronnie's bed and attached a small holy relic to Ronnie's pillow with a safety pin. By the way, um, a holy relic is anything that has been touched by a saint, from what I gather, um, it would serve as a spiritual protection for Ronnie. That's from what I'm gathering. That's right, what it right, is. Right. The priest stayed until the evening time. A little while after Ronnie went up to bed, Bishop and the family heard loud bumping and banging coming from his room. It abruptly stopped. Then Ronnie screamed a deafening scream. Here's an excerpt from the exorcist diary of what they saw when they entered Ronnie's room. Even after the blessing of the house, and this is a quote, and in spite of the relic, the swaying was evident and the scratches appeared. When Father Bishop sprinkled holy water on the bed in the form of a cross, the movement ceased quite abruptly, but began again when Father stepped out of the room. During the course of 15 minutes of activity, a sharp pain seemed to have struck R on his stomach, and he cried out, the mother quickly pulled back the bed covers and lifted the boy's pajamas top, pajama top enough to show zigzag scratches in bold red lines on the boy's abdomen. So if Father Bishop had any doubts before that Ronnie was possessed, I think that they had long subsided by now. Yeah. <laughs> I'd definitely be a believer too if I saw a bed move on its own. By the way, and I'm sorry I didn't mention this earlier. Ronnie is referred to in the Exorcist Diary as R to protect his privacy because well, this was before his name was released. Yeah, obviously, and he was only 13 or 14, so they yes. didn't get out. So yeah. it's to maintain his privacy. Um, for years, he was referred to as Roland Doe, a take on John Doe. Yep. So, yep. so the following day, Father Bishop went to speak to his close friend and colleague, Father William Bodern an ex-army chaplain who pastored in Burma and China back in 1942. So he had seen some stuff. He'd been, he'd been around <laughs> some stuffs. He was described as level-headed and fearless. It's not really on record as to what their conversation was like, but I'm sure it was like, dude, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> you're not going to believe what I saw. I've seen some shit. I know you've seen some shit. Have you seen this kind of shit? You've never seen anything like this. <laughs> Anyways, Father Bishop must have been convincing because he was now accompanied by his friend Father Bodern to the Hunkeller residence that very next evening. Bodern brought along with him two more relics to be safe. I would have brought all the relics, so fair enough. <laughs> well, he hadn't seen it yet. He's only heard about it, so. The two priests sat and chatted for over an hour with Ronnie before his mother sent him up to get ready for bed. By 11... Ronnie was tucked in and the adults were downstairs talking when a loud cry for help was heard from up in Ronnie's room. The two priests, Leonard, Doris, Edwin, 
and Odell, and even Janice, ran to the bedroom where they found Ronnie sitting up in bed, pale as a ghost, but definitely not in a trance this time. He was aware, and he was terrified. Ronnie said that he felt something in the room, and the relic pinned to his pillow had somehow unlatched and went flying across the room, striking a mirror before landing on the floor. Then Ronnie held up both arms. Two scratches appeared down each of his outer forearms, making the sign of the cross. Later on, Father Bishop would write that the scratches were similar, this is a quote, similar to that produced by a thorn, which I guess that makes sense because when you're scratched by a rose thorn or something, it looks different than when you're scratched by like a nail or And if you're... You know, again, we keep saying if you're familiar with these things, it's a mocking. It's a mocking of the Christianity. Right, right. With the considering the crown, not a of, good sign. The crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus's head. It's you know the demons, the threes. You know, three o'clock in the morning. Everything the is in hour, threes to mock mocking, the Trinity. Yeah, everything's a mocking. Of I know that much. So the cross remained very evident on Ronnie's arm for 45 minutes before disappearing. Father Bodern, in response to all of this, calmly read the Novena Prayer of St. Francis Xavier and blessed Ronnie by moving the relic of St. Francis over his body in the sign of a cross. He then repinned the relic back onto his pillow. Things seemed peaceful for now, so they wished him good night and left. It was after this night, Father Bishop compiled all of his initial notes and instructed Bodern to readily add to the case study. So right here is the official beginning of the infamous exorcist diary. Father Bishop wrote this heading on the file. It read, Roland Doe, to protect Ronnie's privacy, of course, son of Mr. and Mrs. Edwin Doe, middle-class Washington suburban development, birth, June 1st, 1935, religion, Evangelical Lutheran, baptized six months after birth by Lutheran minister, maternal grandmother, practicing Catholic until the age of 14, father, baptized Catholic, but no instruction of practice, mother, baptized Lutheran, Roland and his mother visited St. Louis at Belnor, Normandy, at the time of Mr. and Mrs. Elsie Doe, end quote. So, We will pause for a short break and we are going to amp things up when we come back in just a minute. Welcome back. This is a doozy. It's a doozy. So I, I, during a break real quick, I had mentioned to Courtney the last section that she talked about um, that the journal opened with or the diary. The diary. diary. Very important detail in the fact that um, the way he documented, you know, the child, his birth, his baptism, the mother, the religion, the birth, the baptism, the father, the baptism. That is very important information. Uh, should they need to take that to the Vatican or a higher level? Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church. Won't, Archbishop. Not even that. Anything escalating past that. The Catholic Church oh. won't even look into it. Like if they were all. If there's no Catholic. If they were non, not baptized, they were mm-hmm. not religious, they didn't. Oh, they I, I get you. I get you. So I didn't even were, catch that. If they that. were unbaptized, you know, Hebrews or Muslims, the Catholic Church won't get involved. 
Oh, I didn't even catch even that, that before. That's what I was saying to you. I was like, but they have wrong. some affiliation with Catholicism. But so. that it, it, it documents their affiliation, right? To the fact that the Catholic Church is like, okay, they've been baptized, they've done all these sacraments that keep them from these things from happening and protect them or whatever. So we have to get involved, otherwise they'll like blame it on that or whatever. That's insane. I good job. I didn't even catch that. So both priests returned to the Hunkeller home. Uh, the following evening to further speak to and question the family. I think they were pretty convinced that they would need to apply for permission to do an exorcism sooner than later. So they needed to collect all the evidence they could. You need ample evidence to be granted permission for an exorcism. Well, there apparently. has to be, no, there's, it's not like, you know, reasonable doubt. It's, yeah, you have to be a hundred percent certain. Like, right. And, and there's no, a certain criteria that yeah, you have to meet. There's a whole criteria yeah. list, and there can be absolutely zero doubt that this is actually what's happening. So after taking several pages of notes, the priests were preparing to leave when they heard loud crashing upstairs. They all rushed to Ronnie's room, and Ronnie frantically explained that while he was asleep, a bottle of holy water left behind by Father Bishop flew off of his bedside table, soared across the room, and landed on the floor without breaking. Bodern, Father Bodern, silently removed a rosary from his pocket and draped it around Ronnie's neck. Together, Father Bishop and Bodern began to recite the rosary. Afterward, Father Bodern sat with Ronnie, who was beyond frazzled, and comforted him. The boy seemed somewhat at peace, so the priest left for the night. And at about 1 a.m., leaving Ronnie asleep, alone in the bedroom... However, the night was just getting started. Of course. A few minutes after the priest left, the adults heard heavy scraping across the floor in Ronnie's room. They went to open his bedroom door, turning the knob, but just as they had barely gotten the door cracked, a solid wood bookshelf came flying across the bedroom, stopping in front of the doorway, blocking the family's entrance. Edwin was able to shoulder the door open. It took two grown men to move this bookcase out of the way. There was no way Ronnie could have done it alone, much less while he was visibly still in bed. Odell also noticed that a stool had been thrown across the room. She had had enough at this point, still believing it was her pesky dead sister-in-law. Oh, God. Tilly, causing all of this commotion. So what she did next is something you definitely shouldn't do with demons. She addressed them directly again (laughs) please don't do this (laughs) she said tilly are you the one responsible uh, responsible for this again and ronnie's bed started to shake odell then asked tilly to confirm it was her and then there was a loud scratching in the room the family was terrified especially ronnie Odell decided to sleep next to her son to comfort him but this didn't stop whatever it was in that room from lashing out Later on, after Odell and Ronnie were asleep, Odell woke up, suddenly aware of a dark presence in the room, she would later say. Then the stool that she had placed next to the bed earlier fell over and cracked, awakening Ronnie. Ronnie then felt something moving underneath his pillow. It was the relic. It had somehow come unpinned again and was slithering like a snake from underneath the fitted sheet. Their bed began to shake and vibrate. Scratching sounds then started. Too terrified to move, the bed began to slam up and down, creating a terrifying, chaotic sound. 
Odell grabbed Ronnie and went flying down the stairs where the whole family had now gathered due, due to all the commotion. That night, the whole family slept together in the living room. Yeah. I just want to say so far that like when big, huge things like this happen, they're not happening in front of the priest, but they will eventually. Oh, sure. But I know a lot of people are going to argue saying, oh, isn't it funny how as soon as the priests leave, this stuff happens, you know? Well, I mean, if you believe just in hang this- on. If you believe in this stuff, it makes sense, right? Because, you know, it's a demon. It's not fully powerful yet. It's trying to gain power with fear and, you know, taking control of the kid. It's actually escalated because it wouldn't used to do this stuff with, like, the parents in the room. Right. So now it's obviously escalated because Ronnie's mom's, like, in bed with him and it's doing this shit. So crazy. So it's getting stronger and more brazen. Saturday, Ronnie's cousin Janice went back to Father Bishop and described exactly what had happened after the priest left the Hunkeller residence. Despite wanting to gather more evidence, Father Bishop knew there was a definite sense of urgency, so he just went ahead and applied for permission to conduct an exorcism on Ronnie. Just do it. Yeah. On March 14th, Archbishop Ritter surprisingly granted permission for Ronnie's exorcism under the condition that the details of the ritual would never be leaked. This would be totally done in secret. No one could know. Oh, no crap. Archbishop Ritter, for whatever reason, placed Father Bodern and why can't I say his name all of a sudden? I don't know. Bodern in charge of the ritual. It can only be speculated that it was due to his piety and his general understanding and familiarity with the case. Also, you know, he's this, seen some shit. Well, he's seen some shit, and this case in is war. super famous, but it was supposed to be done in secret, so you don't know that Bodern hadn't done. This before in exorcisms, Burma? Exorcisms in secret before they were authorized or even unauthorized. That must have been where they got the story. You know the prequel to The Exorcist that came out with, who was it? It was the dad of Floki that starred in it. Oh, Skarsgård? He's a, the dad of the Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he starred in it. And I wonder, it was back somewhere. I don't know if it was Burma. Oh, maybe that's where it came from. That's where it came from, this this story, which I think is really cool. Anyway, Bodern agreed and requested that Bishop continue compiling detailed notes that would one day become the exorcist diary. Both men felt that it was crucial to any priest in a similar situation in the future, although the diary would remain carefully hidden by the church for decades. Yep. The exorcism officially began Wednesday afternoon on March 16th, 1949 at the Hunkeller home in Belnor, but would end at the election Alexian brothers hospital in South St. Louis, which is no longer there, by the way, portions of the exorcism would also occur at St. Xavier's church or the university church as it was called. So there would be three distinct locations where this would all take place and we'll go through all of them. That's nuts. In all, it isn't clear how many people attended the exorcism, but we do know for sure that there were at least 48 total witnesses that would eventually sign statements saying that they were present at some point during the ritual and believed that what they had seen was real. This is all documentation for the church. Yes. Most notably, in attendance was Father Walter Holleran, who, you, who would provide physical restraint through the majority of the exorcism. He's a younger, bigger guy. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot about him, too. So I'm going to throw a bunch of names at you, but I'll try to go slow. <laughs> so with all that to bear in mind, let's start at the beginning, 
the Hunkeller House exorcism. Father Holleran, Bishop, and Bodern all went to the Hunkeller home, ready to begin their ritual. The priest took the time to explain to Ronnie what was about to happen. They comforted him and reassured the boy. From what I can gather, by all accounts, most of the people involved in this were top-notch people. So, I mean, that's just my opinion from what I've read. It was a long time ago, I don't know. but Odell then sent Ronnie off to bed. Father Bodern followed Ronnie to his room and prayed with him for a bit. Father Halloran and Bishop soon followed, each with a copy of the Ritual Romanum in hand. Ritual, it's R-I-T-U-A-L, Ritual Ritual Romanum. It should be Ritual, yeah. Uh, by, definition, by definition, the Ritual Romanum is one of the official books of the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church and contains all of the services which may be performed by a priest. It's a handbook of sorts from what I'm gathering, so please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think exorcism is also in there. Well, I mean, exorcism is a Roman rite. I mean, it's a, it's a rite under the Catholic Church. Yeah, so it's, it's in there yeah, it's amongst other ones. Amongst of, other of ones, probably course. like, I don't know, I don't even want to venture what all the ones in there, but. Yeah. It's in there. So the priest unrolled their purple stoles, kissing them and placing them around their necks. Bodern crossed the room opposite of the bed where Ronnie was laying and made the sign of the cross as he sprinkled the bed and the boy with holy water. Then all three priests knelt down surrounding Ronnie's bed and began a series of prayers. It is reported now that each priest witnessed Ronnie's bed begin to move. Father Holleran said with his own eyes, he watched the bed go up and down, lifting several inches off the ground, then landing down with a thud. Holleran never had seen this, so he was visibly shaken. Father Bishop instructed his fellow priests to ignore it and keep praying as they resumed prayers over Ronnie. Holleran said Ronnie began to scream in agony. The boy tore his pajama top open, and across his stomach were three long red welts. Every time Bodoran said the word Dominus, which means Lord, or Deus, which means God, in prayer, new welts and scratches would appear. Reportedly, Ronnie's hands were in plain sight the whole time. Bodern demanded a sign from the demon when it planned to depart from the boy. That's when a bloody X appeared on the boy's stomach. This is important. X represents the number 10 in Roman numerals, so it was thought to represent 10 days. Some crazy stuff right there. But hang hang on to that. We'll get back to it. (laughs) Just then, Ronnie seemed to pass out. Bodern continued reading and reciting prayers of exorcism when Ronnie began to stir violently in his sleep. With his eyes closed, he twisted and contorted and began thrashing up and down. It was said that he appeared to be almost feral. Also, remember he is now covered in bloody gashes, nearly two dozen. So you know it was quite a terrifying sight. Bodern sprinkled Ronnie again with holy water, and the boy jolted awake, recalling a terrifying dream that he had had. Ronnie said that he had been in a battle with a huge red devil who was trying to keep him from escaping a burning pit of fire. Above Ronnie in the pit were two closed iron gates that Ronnie felt he had to break through to escape. 
The priests all looked at each other in amazement. Ronnie didn't know this, but the Latin prayer of St. Michael was what the boy had just described. Remember, Ronnie wasn't raised Catholic. He wouldn't have known that. Right, yeah, there's no reason for him to know that. As the exorcism went on, Ronnie would again fall into a trance-like state, this time lashing out violently. His uncle Leonard at one time had to be called in to help the priest subdue the boy. You have three grown men that can't subdue this child. (laughs) Ronnie slipped free from his uncle's grasp and struck Leonard, his uncle, across the face before finally being held down. Bodern traced the sign of the cross on Ronnie's forehead. In response to this, Ronnie jolted forward and spewed a sticky, odd mass of mucus and blood on the priest's face. Bodern did a really good job of never reacting, and I don't feel I could do the same, yeah, no to be thanks. honest. <laughs> He's spitting stuff back in his face like, no, I'm sorry. He just kept reading from his prayer book. I have to say that I think that this is where the vomiting of the split pea soup came from. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the split pea soup in the movie. I didn't add this, but it said that it was a green too. I mean, it just sounds like it. And that's exactly what happens in the movie, right? TMI. The the girl sits up and spews the green stuff all over the priest and he just keeps doing his thing. By now, the three men holding down Ronnie were exhausted. One thin and lanky 14-year-old boy versus three grown men. And that 14-year-old boy was winning. That should tell you something about the superhuman strength this kid had all of a sudden. Finally, Ronnie collapsed into a deep Seemingly natural sleep, but you never know. Though it was reported in the diary that several times throughout that night, holy water had to be readministered. Father Bodern would record in the exorcist diary regarding the first night's ritual. He would say, About 7.30 a.m., R. began a natural sleep and continued quite peacefully until 1 p.m. of the 17th. He awoke to eat an ordinary meal. So he's really keeping track of everything. I mean, here. He's detailing everything, yeah. All three of the priests, after that first night, knew that this was going to take a while. This was no easy task. Night two of the exorcism went went much the same. On the third night, however, whatever was inside of Ronnie grew stronger. He exploded into spath- spasms, tearing at the bedding with three grown men barely able to restrain him. Father Bishop recorded in the diary that night, quote, the contortions revealed physical strength beyond the natural power of R. It was also recorded that night by Father Bishop, and this is some crazy shit. He, meaning Ronnie, pulled off the upper part of his clothing and held his arms high above himself in supplication. Then he made as though he was trying to vomit from his stomach. His gestures moved upwards he seemed to try to lift the devil from his stomach to his throat. It was right after this that Ronnie screamed for someone to open the window. He was frantic, demanding it. He then ran to the window and screamed out, he's going, before falling limp to the floor. Ronnie would later say that he saw a figure in a black cowl walk away out from, him, out from himself, growing smaller and smaller before eventually disappearing. Father Bishop was certain this was all over with. So much so that after the family said a prayer of thanks, the priest all returned to the rectory and fell asleep. You know they were exhausted. Yeah, they were exhausted. So they're like, yeah. phew. But at 3.15 a.m., the rectory phone rang, 
It was Ronnie on the other end screaming, he's coming back. So the priest returned to find Ronnie in the same violent state. The the exorcism then resumed a few hours later. Over the next few days, Ronnie's condition got remarkably worse. He began saying vile sexual things to people around him that I won't repeat. If you remember that one awful scene from the movie, then you get the drift. Yeah, I'm trying my best (laughs) not to repeat it. Blasphemous things. (laughs) Father Bishop wrote that Ronnie would describe blasphemous acts that were too upsetting to be recorded. He also started defecating and urinating all over his room. The smell of his room was so inhumanly foul that not even open windows helped. It was then that the priest recommended to Ronnie's family that he be moved to a hospital where he could be closely monitored. Perhaps it would help matters if Ronnie was away from the home. It was worth a shot. Ronnie's mom and dad agreed. I'm sure not knowing what else to do. Like, whatever you got to do, do it, right? That's insanity right there. So on March 21st, Ronnie was moved into a secure unit at the Alexian Brothers Hospital. And it was here that yet another Jesuit priest named William A. Von Rue would join the team of exorcists. So you're going to be hearing his name added onto the roster. (laughs) Ronnie actually slept through the first night without any issue, which is huge. But the second night was a three-ring tell circus. (laughs) Around 9.30 p.m., Ronnie's hospital bed began to shake. Ronnie slipped into a trance-like state, but by now the priest knew better, so three of them held Ronnie down just in case he burst into another violent episode. As the priest recited the prayers, Ronnie opened his eyes, this is so creepy, looked directly at Father Holleran, who was holding his arm, smiled diabolically, and calmly said, Let go. Before Holleran could register what just happened, Ronnie broke free from the three priests' grasp and swung at Father Holleran, breaking his nose with a loud crack. Then, before anyone could grab Ronnie, he backhanded Father Van Roo in the face before urinating and defecating. The smell was so horrible that the priest's eyes even started to water and the hospital staff had to be called in to open a window. Then, and this is terrifying, Ronnie turned to Father Bodern, eyes tightly closed, yet somehow knowing exactly where he was in the room, and said, I see you in hell. It's 1956. Remember, it was 1949 when this happened. Yeah, that's insanity. Reportedly, this affected Father Bodern greatly. I mean, you can't blame him. Then, Ronnie seemed to fall asleep for a bit, but he wouldn't sleep for long. The boy sat up again in a trance-like state, and started wildly masturbating while hurling obscenities too vile for the priest to record. Around 2.30 a.m., Ronnie's exhausted body went limp. The following night, the entity seemed to leave the boy completely. Ten days to the date, as it had previously stated, remember the Roman numeral X, Ronnie seemed normal again, even into the night. Father Bodern had been expecting that this would be the last night of possession, and so far he seemed to be correct. The following day, Ronnie was his normal self for the most part, and he was released and able to return back to his aunt and uncle's house to be with his family. Crazy, right? Oh, but don't worry, it's not done. (laughs) 
For a day or so, Ronnie seemed back to his normal self, but unfortunately, it would be short-lived. Ronnie came down one night after being put to bed and told his parents that he was feeling ill. Odell tried to encourage him to go back to sleep and get some rest, reassuring him that he was probably just exhausted. Ronnie persisted, though, begging that everyone come upstairs with him. He was terrified. The adults escorted Ronnie back up to his room and watched as he sat on the bed. His eyes clouded over completely, and his head dropped back to the point that his forehead was almost touching the mattress. So picture that. Like Cirque du Soleil stuff, you know? Yep, yep, that makes <laughs> He then raised his index finger and began to trace shapes onto his bed. As Ronnie did this, he began, his bed began to shake. Then he began to speak as if reading what he had just traced on the bed. Ronnie said, and this is a quote, it doesn't make much sense, but I'm just reading what he said. I will stay 10 days, but will return in four days. If Ronald stays gone to lunch. If you stay and become a Catholic, it will stay away. Odell, God will take it away four days after it has gone 10 days. God is getting powerful. The last day when it quits, it will leave a sign on my front. Father Bishop, all people that mangle with me will die a terrible death, end quote. Excuse me, demon. I'm going to need you to be a little more clear. I don't get it. <laughs> he's saying that God's getting powerful and he's going to leave after four days. When what does back. lunch have to do with it? Maybe he's going to go get a snack and come back. But then he's warning that <laughs> anybody that you know participates in the exorcism is going to die a horrible death. Maybe that was just misinterpreted or something. I don't know. Odell, in tears, called Father Bodern and informed him. He showed up soon after with... Father Van Roo, and Father Halloran in tow with him. After the initial prayer, Father Bodern commanded the entities to reveal his name, to which Ronnie responded, I am the devil himself. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> well, nope right out of there. Peace <laughs> out, Ronnie. <laughs> and it was at this time that I would have just yeeted myself right out of there. The night went on much like many others before it, with Ronnie violently lashing out and hurling obscenities. After the priest felt like he was settled in for the night, Father Bodern convinced Odell and Edwin to allow Ronnie to be baptized in the Catholic faith. He was sure that this would drive the entity out of the boy. Well, it's basically what they said. If you baptize him, it'll go away. Yep. So Ronnie, or the demon said that, yeah. Well, the demon said that. Basically. So Ronnie's baptism was scheduled... For 7 p.m. the following day, but as you can imagine, it would not go smoothly. No, and it's it's interesting <laughs> to note that when they commanded its name. Um, I'm the devil himself. It says, I'm the devil himself. You know, if you follow all those beliefs and all the occult stories, you know, when, you know, during an exorcism and during these things, when, you know, when the, when the priest demands the name of the demon, that there's, I don't know how true it is or not. They're not supposed, they're supposed to not be able to, like, really tell it. And once they do, you get power over the demon. Yeah. So that's when you're starting to win. Yeah. But a demon's not going to claim to be the devil because the devil's going to fuck them up for that shit. It wasn't the the entity in the exorcist. Wasn't that Pazuzu? Or Cap- I know it was Captain Howdy. That was his name. But Captain it Howdy. Was it, was, it was speculated in the movie they were portraying Pazuzu. Pazuzu. 
So on the way to the baptism, Ronnie's uncle Leonard was driving to St. Francis Xavier Church. Ronnie's father, Edwin, was in the front seat, and Odell and Ronnie were in the back from what I can gather. It was kind of unclear. Ronnie entered a complete state of rage in the car and lunged forward, choking his uncle Leonard, who was driving from behind, causing the car to swerve off the road and screech to stop just before hitting a light post. Mm. Ronnie then turned to Odell, his mother, grabbed her by the throat, and began beating her about the face. Yeah. Edwin and Leonard were able to subdue the boy and hold him down just long enough to make it to the church. Once they were there, the scuffle continued outside, and Father Bodern came out to see what all the fuss was about. He considered bringing and enraged Ronnie into the sanctuary, but he feared that he would desecrate the holy building. Yep. So he opted to bring him into the rectory, into a room with a small bed. After a four-hour-long battle with a violent and enraged Ronnie, Father Bodern was finally able to somehow baptize the boy after four hours of battling this kid. I mean, demon don't want to be baptized. Guess not. It's like a cat getting wet. I mean, it's a mild <laughs> reference, but yeah. <laughs> That's what I imagine. Trying to put a cat in a bathtub. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still at the rectory the following day. By the way, the rectory was torn down. It was on university campus. Yeah, I would want Can't to get rid of any evidence of that fucking event. <laughs> Still at the rectory the following day, Father Bodern prepared for Ronnie to take his first communion, but Ronnie's condition continued to worsen. It took four priests to force Ronnie to take the wafer into his mouth and swallow it. Eventually, Ronnie calmed and was dressed and ready to be taken back to his aunt and uncle's house in Belnor the following morning. Back at the residence, Father Bodern and Ronnie's parents watched as Ronnie declined even more. By now, he was a shell of himself. Another exorcism at the Belnor home would be attempted on this night, but again to no avail. A few nights later, during yet another attempted exorcism, Ronnie spoke in a voice that was unlike his own, claiming, quote, I will not go, and this is important, I will not go until a certain word is pronounced, and this boy will never say it. So just hang on to that because it's going to come up here again soon. By now, it was just painfully clear that Ronnie was a danger to himself and to any and all around him and he needed constant care and supervision. So the family agreed to have Ronnie admitted to a hospital, the Alexian Brothers Hospital, which would serve as the site for the final exorcism. And trust me, it's going to be crazy. <laughs> er. Crazier er. than it already has been. Which crazy est. Fucking insane how crazy this already is, dude. Ronnie entered the hospital on April 10th, just after 6 a.m., He was admitted to a secure ward on the fifth floor where Father Bodern, Bishop, and now Father Flaherty instructed hospital staff to secure Ronnie to his bed. So strap him down. Side note, it was said that at this time, Father Bodern had lost nearly 40 pounds and had boils and infected sores down both of his arms. So this had taken quite a toll on him. Physically. Yeah. I do want to mention some of that weight was lost because he had fasted in preparation for this ritual, but 
the rest was stress related, I'm sure. Of course. And probably hasn't eaten the entire time. And demon related. As Bodern, um, oh, sorry. Anyways, Father Bodern began the final exorcism ritual, though he wouldn't know that to be true. He probably was fearful that this night was going to go just as poorly as all the rest oh, were. Yeah. As Bodern prayed in Latin, Ronnie began thrashing around and somehow freed himself from his restraints, which is almost impossible to do from hospital restraints. As he did that, a crucifix went hurling across the room inexplicably. One of the priests, it's not clear who, was able to somehow get Ronnie to repeat the Hail Mary in Latin, repeating Father Bodern's words. And for whatever reason, this appeared to be working. A prayer book launched across the room on its own. And instead of Ronnie seemingly giving in to this entity, Ronnie persisted in repeating the Hail Mary over and over. So he was determined at this point. point, Something appeared to be breaking loose. Ronnie's eyes then squeezed shut and Father Bodern placed a crucifix in the boy's hand. And Ronnie actually kept it there, something that would have never happened before. Then Ronnie's tongue began to flick in and out like a serpent. But Ronnie and Father Bodern persisted in their prayers for nearly two hours more. Then Ronnie fell completely silent, drawing in a long breath. With his exhale, a voice other than his own came out of his mouth. He claimed to be St. Michael the Archangel as he ordered the demon to depart. The voice shouted, and I quote, I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits to leave the body in the name of Dominus immediately. Just then, Father Bodern suddenly realized that the word the demon claimed Ronnie would never say was Dominus. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. That was the word, and Ronnie had said it. Ronnie's body then went into the most violent contortions as if expelling something from within. Once he became still, a huge thundering noise shook the literal whole hospital like an atomic explosion that was heard by everyone in every single part of the building. Ronnie looked at Father Bodern and said very calmly, he's gone. It was over. Following this final ritual, the room where Ronnie's last exorcism took place in the Alexian Brothers Hospital was boarded up and sealed. In 1978, the entire facility was torn down. Insanity. Insanity. So Ronnie, you would be happy to know, went on to live a normal life. After the events, the Hunkeller family all converted to Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, I would too. <laughs> Ronnie went on to graduate high school, keeping in touch with Father Bodern throughout his life. He received two college degrees, one in chemical engineering and the other in psychology before marrying. And I just showed you a picture of him a while ago when we took a break. Yeah. So you got to see him. Ronnie had one son and two daughters. He named his son Michael after St. Michael, who he felt was responsible for helping to save him from the entity, which I think is pretty cool. When he passed away in May of 2020, the last living part of the St. Louis exorcism was gone, and the names could finally be revealed after all these years. Father Bodern passed away in 1983 at the ripe old age of 86 years old. 
So he obviously recovered well after this incident, and I was happy to hear that he didn't pass away in 1956 and go to hell as the demon claimed he was going to. Yeah, no crap. (laughs) I'll make sure to include pictures of all the people and places involved in this ordeal on our Instagram. And there is so much to this story, and even though I've kept you here a long time, I just gave you a very brief rundown, so I'll add in some reading material into the show notes Uh, that I used to research, and so you can get the whole picture. Um, I'm not really sure how to feel about this. I tend to believe that a group of over 48 people wouldn't go to such great lengths to create such a fantastical story, but I don't know. What do you think? I don't think they did, and then have it sealed for all these years with names not released and all these other things. Like, I I don't think that's... You, I've never seen you this quiet. This is insanity. And you were looking at me the whole time. Like, what the fuck is happening right now? <laughs> and then the craziest part is like, obviously, you know, it's hard to say whether this is real or not. You know, you got your skeptics, you got believers, you have non-believers. But to me, it's crazy because you have this demon who's clearly possessing this kid in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, coming through and his kid's doing things that he couldn't do, speaking in languages that he can't. And at the very end, he's like, this fucking kid is done. Unless mm-hmm. he says a certain word. And the demon even says, he'll never fucking do it. Mm-hmm. Like, he won't do it. So then this kid says the word, the Dominus, mm-hmm. but it's, they even say it's like, he, it's St. Michael, the Archangel Michael doing mm-hmm. it. So it's like divine intervention on this kid. Like, no, fuck you. This kid's getting saved. Yeah. Uh, he can't say it, but I can come do the same shit you're doing. Yeah. And say it for him. Kind of, it's that's blew my mind. It, it's mind blowing. It's like he was possessed by a demon. Crazy. And an archangel came to possess him to speak what he needed to say to tell the fucking devil to fuck off. I mean, if this is a made up story, shit. I don't. What were you on Who's to make that up? <laughs> Who's the damn author? I know. I mean, it's it's. I'm I'm anxious to hear you guys' take. I know that there's been. I've seen some critics saying that he Ronnie you know, got caught in a lie and everybody just went with it because it had gotten out to some degree. Um, I don't think that's true because I know people who went to school with them. They said, you know, we just, we didn't know where he was. He just wasn't there anymore. You know, so I don't think anything got out, you know, too much. They might've known something weird was up. Yeah. I mean, obviously the story wasn't told. It was done in secret, all these kind of things. But Mm -hmm. here's what's even crazier to me as I think about it. Like they sealed all these names until Ronnie's death in May of 2020. Yeah. Most likely he wasn't running around telling the story to people. No. Um, the one thing that I didn't add into this because I would really love it if you guys read the book that I'll link, but the author Troy and I forgot his last name. Anyway, he interviewed, he was granted a personal interview by Ronnie, uh, before his death. And Ronnie doesn't speak about it, but, um, he said that he's not going to deny that this happened. No, but my point to that That's was... That's about all he said. All I was trying to say was that, you know, what's crazy is that no one knew about this until May of 2020, like names and everything. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie probably wasn't running around telling everybody. No. He most likely got married and had kids. Mm-hmm. And they never knew about this. And then he di- his kids, he dies, their dad dies. And all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> your dad's the fucking story behind the exorcist. Yeah. And you're like, excuse me, what? I'm sorry, wait, what? My dad was the what? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. 
I do know this. I know that researching this scared me. I did this to get away from serial killers after the torso killer, and this frightened me. Yeah, it's, it's 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 an insane story if it's true. I was laying in bed a few it's nights. Terrifying like, if it's true. <laughs> no like. Yeah. No, it's yeah. It's definitely something that if it is true or you even believe it to be true, yeah, will fuck with your brain for a little while. So guys, let us know what you think. I'm not going to say either way. I know it's terrifying one way or the other, even if it's not a real story. I tend to think, I think the, the truth lies in the, the middle somewhere, if that makes sense, as it usually does. It usually does, yeah. So let us know what you think. DM us on IG, email us at Evil Pudding Podcast, and... Be good to each other. We will see you back here next week. Bye.